Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. All right, I'm going to ask you to think of a president of a world governing body of a particular sport desperately trying to cling to power after being embroiled in a number of controversies and ridiculed for some of the public utterances he has made. Ken, who would you think of? Pat McQuaid. Okay, now add in a belief that aliens invented the sport and will destroy the planet if people don't play it enough. And you've got Kirsan... I'm not sure of the pronunciation of the second name. I'll go for William Ginov. That'll do for me, Ken. President of the World Chess Federation... For almost 20 years, this guy's like a soup, very souped up Pat McQuaid. He's in the news this week because he's in the sights of Gary Kasparov, who's playing the Brian Cookson role in this increasingly clunky analogy yeah. at the start of the show. Kasparov is the legendary grandmaster, of course, and he has a sight set on the top job. Two reasons we want to cover this story today, Ken. One, aliens. Yeah. I mean, anything to do with aliens is good. Yeah, you don't, you don't, probably don't talk enough about them. I mean, considering how large the universe is and how small planet Earth is, our focus, our relentless focus on Earth-based uh, stories and events does seem maybe a little bit insular. And secondly, we'll just take any excuse to tell our Gary Kasparov story. We've got a bit of history with this guy. I'm making that sound like there's some animosity, which there isn't, but there's a story to tell, which we'll do before the end of the show tonight. We'll leave that for the time being. One of the most iconic GA players last 15 years will be in studio in just a couple of minutes' time. Sean Ogle helping to talk about his autobiography. The very first words of the book, you may feel as though you know me, are indicative of the fact that he's one of a handful of hurlers, probably, who's famous, transcended the sport. And because he's so well-known, it's easy to overlook how amazing his story is. Arriving in Cork as a kid after a three-month trek from Australia via Rotuma in Fiji, where his mother was from, making his way in a new country, obviously feeling and looking different to people in Cork and in Ireland at the time and then achieving what he did. Also dealing with his father through all this who drives him absolutely relentlessly. I'm particularly interested in this and he talks about his dad's fanatical critiques and it sounds like something that Sean Ogg has struggled to deal with over the years. So that's one part of uh, what is a a very interesting life story which we'll talk about in just a little while. I stayed late last night, Ken. I'm looking a bit bleary-eyed today. The Mm. Boston Red Sox were on the verge of and indeed completed their victory in the World Series. First time they've done that at home in almost a century. One of the most macho teams I've seen in sports, Ken. Their opponents look really clean cut and frankly somewhat disinterested. Who were the opponents? At the St. Louis Cardinals. Right. Oh, well, you know, very clean shaven, very nice nice men. They look like... Cardinals is quite a strange name for... I mean, Cardinals? Is, is that also the name of a bird or something? Or are they... <laughs> Literally called after the, the sort of second-ranking well, official of, in the church. Yeah, they were one of the very, very old teams, as are the Boston Red Sox, one of the founding members of the initially two leagues that made up Major League. Cardinal might, do, I guess. might be sort of meaning prime or one of those one of those types. The Red Sox, though, they were heavily bearded and massively pumped up. Really macho guys. David Thickly Ortiz. Thickly muscled. Yeah, Big Papa, or you know, as I called him last week. Yeah. It's actually Big Papa. 42-year-old men with the vigor of 25-year-old Yeah, Ortiz, men. I mean, he's a strong. I mean, and the muscles of six-year-old bullocks. At one point, Ortiz is walked, so the pitcher essentially doesn't fancy taking him on on this particular occasion because he's getting whacked around the field over the course of this 
series. As he's, immediately it's obvious he's about to be walked because the catcher behind him takes up a particular position and he's just ready to catch these floated balls out to the side. As this happens, Ortiz turns to the next guy, another massively bearded man, and said, and, well, I couldn't make out what he was saying, but the commentator seemed pretty clear on it. He was turning around to the next guy up and going, ha, look what they, they think, you're useless. You know? yeah. So this is how little respect they have for you, that they're walking me, trying to get the next guy. Now the next guy turns out actually didn't deliver yeah. on this uh, stirring pep talk. But there's loads to talk about with US Murph. No care on Murphy today. He will be back for you next week. But it is time to speak to our first guest. And I'm delighted to have Sean Ogle Halp being in studio. Sean Ogle, how are you? I'm fantastic, go on. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Not at all. Uh, well, how's the book going for you so far? Yeah, it's um, it's, it's going pretty okay. It's out there now, so there's no turning back. <laughs> it's, it's in black and white. Um, so, um, yeah, like it, it, it's been a busy last week, and it's going to be a busy few weeks just promoting the book, leading up to Christmas. But uh, um, I must say it was probably one of the more stressful things Doing a book, really? Oh, like just uh, just deciding what you wanted to talk about, what you didn't want to talk about, that kind of thing. A lot of that stuff, right? Um, and then and then when you when you really get kind of deep into the book, then like kind of you cover stuff, you know, over your life, kind of that's pretty much sad. Do you know what I mean? But on the flip side, you cover things that are very enjoyable, and then just getting deadlines into the publisher, like, yeah. and, and and then you're trying to you're trying to work this around. Your work life, you know, um, your nine to five work schedule, and then I'm still playing with the club, you know, competitively. So trying to work around that and trying to get the book in. Uh, but look, it's there. When it's you when, when you now. see the end product, uh, you can look back and say, yeah, look, I'm, I, 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 uh, it is rewarding. We'll start at the end, Sean. Oak. This time last year, pretty much almost exactly this time last year, a Friday night, you're sitting in a car in in a hotel car park. I'm not sure why the meeting is happening here, but Jimmy Barry Murphy is in the passenger seat. What's he saying to you? Um, basically, he just calls it out that he says, "Look, we're gonna we're going different direction, and we want to give you know a um, lot of young fellas um, they'll go, and um, uh, we're 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 building for two to three years time." Um, he doesn't mention my age, but he says, "Look, I don't know whether you're going to be playing at that stage." And look, a lot of the things he says is you get, you know, yeah. you get. But it's it's my ego overrides everything, you know. I, I I still convince myself that I still have the goods, you know. My last game in a cockshot, I did okay against Galway, um, and and even though in my heart and heart leaving Crow Park that day, I kind of have a half. I like you have a feeling that look, this is probably take a good look at this place because this is probably last place, you know, because. You get the signs earlier on that year, you know, you're only a bit player, you know, you, you, you get the body language from the management that, look, nah, you, you're not really wanted around here. You know, um, in particular, after just one game, Sean Og, I think you played Kilkenny in the league final, and after that you thought, what struck me was, I remember, John Giles has talked about this many years ago, where he played a game against, I think it was Spurs, um, for Manchester United in, the, in 1963 or whatever it was, and he didn't play well, that was fine, but he thought immediately after that game, Matt Busby, his attitude towards him changed somewhat. Matt Busby just, he, 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 Giles thought, didn't believe in him anymore. It struck me that that was maybe, there was somewhat the case in your case. Funny enough, um, my 2012 season changed completely after the league final. You know, um, we got hammered by Kilkenny and, um, uh, say my relationship with Jimmy then was kind of non-existent really do you know um, and then do you know what I don't want to be giving out about Jimmy because Jimmy's like he's a cock icon he's very good he gave me my first start do you know which I'll never forget do you know any coach mightn't have given you a start but he gave me my first start um, which was to become do you know I played 15 years with Cork but without getting a start so I don't forget that you know but uh, forward on 2012 after the league final uh, the relationship is just very distant there's no eye contact there's no explanation why you're not picked or playing and you know I could handle like I'm 35 at that stage I, I would have considered myself like a, a mature adult you know what I mean so I, I can get not getting the first team start but just once you know just once the reason behind and what you need to do but there was none of that um, but you get the picture as the summer's going along that you know um, the writing's on the wall oh it is it is on and, and then and then and then and then in ways I kind of I'm kind of angry myself having to go through that meeting in the car park with him because I know what's coming like but I just don't want to believe it like you know I just like the male ego in a sporting environment is it's a danger like you'd 
like you, you, you convince yourself that you still have the goods and then I thought he was wrong and then, and then I grieved all winter that he had called her wrong and then bang I'm a spectator I watched the championship season unfold 2013 I see these like kind of guys buzzing around Crow Park half forwards like that are down the other side of the pitch they're you know covering a lot of acres the intensity is a million miles an hour and I'm looking at like new hurlers like Tony Kelly Podge Collins John Conlon emerging and I'm saying look do you know what he's probably did Jay all of us a favour but right. he's done me a favour like. and, 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 and that's very hard for me to say that but look I, I, I think it takes a bigger person to admit that do you know what I, mean? I don't know whether other people would admit it um, but uh, at that moment, on my, my my ending in a cock, uh, my ending in the cock short is conflicted between my heart and my head. Do you yeah. know, um, and uh, and you know when I look back now, I'm I, I'm relieved. I, I'm a relieved man. Just to, like that's out of my system. That's out of my head now. I can move on to my next chapter, whatever, whatever that is. And I, I I I'm relieved. And then the overriding fact is when I look back over my say playing career um, look I don't think that I could have got any extra ounce out of me and then that gives me great kind of that gives me great satisfaction and peace with myself you know when I'm going to bed at night knowing that look I don't think I could have given it any more you say in the book I wasn't fully confident in my striking until halfway through my senior career yeah it's true though that's amazing it's true it is Um, it's only when I start hitting my straps around 2004 Three, four, five. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Uh, then again, like kind of my body, like from twenty six to twenty nine. You know, um, that's where I done my best hurling. That's where my body was at its peak. I didn't have many injuries during those years. Uh, and then again, look outside of myself. We had a fantastic team, fantastic players, fantastic characters who were around the same age. So we were all hitting our peak. Do you know what I mean? Together, because we had kind of gone through underage together, minor twenty one. We'd won 99, kind of, albeit as very young kids, do you know what I mean? But we all kind of grew up together. And at 26, man, you're just humming. Do you know, there's, there's teams there that you don't like striking now. You don't think about it, you just do it. Do you know what I mean? And it's very hard to explain to people until they experience it themselves like that. Yeah. Body, mind and soul is all at one. And you're just doing things like kind of naturally, instinctively. But before that, oh boy, it's a struggle, especially... Um, I wasn't naturally born with the game. Do you know, I came, I came here 11 year old and still to this day, like people say, well, um, uh, it's probably the one criticism that Sean Oak plays like a manual, a fella that's read a manual book and hurling. And that's the way, and, and I got through. Do you know, I got by. But that was basically I, 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 true, yeah. Yeah, and I was. Uh, not like Satanta or Izaki who played hurling more naturally because they started hurling from the get-go. Okay, even though they're born in Australia, but they start like their underage coaching at six years of age. Do you know what I mean? So I lose that five year, five year uh, gap. And at 11, uh, I try and get, and then, and then I like, I'll tell you no lie. And it's embarrassing. Like I, one of my first games in a Cork senior shirt, like, and I, I had a couple of fresh areas up in Nolan Park, <laughs> Mark and DJ Carey. Uh, and you just want to like, you, you just wish like that the ground just open and swallow up and go home your wally and kind of just do something else. Like, you know, kind of, and then, um, uh, but like, uh, like, I, 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 I'm glad to see myself that look, I wasn't the best fella, I wasn't the best hurler that ever graced a hurling field, and I will never claim to because I wasn't. But what made me survive at that level was my commitment. Yeah, like I, I, I've yet to met a fella's committed to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I put in unbelievable hours, like you know, into, and I needed to, you know, to survive with like sort you're playing against Brian Whelan one weekend, you're playing against DJ another weekend, and then you think like that it can't get better than DJ, and then Kilkenny unload a fellow by the name of Henry Shefflin, like, you know what I mean, that torments kind of, you know, defences like for 10 years, uh, James O'Connor, Claire, like, for me to survive with those guys, I needed to bring something else to the package, and it was my commitment and my dedication, you know, that, 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 yeah. that gets me to survive at that level. There'd be a know? perception also that that commitment to training, almost maniacal kind of commitment, is something that you enjoyed, though. Is that is that fair? You actually you had to do it, sure, but you th- you can't really do that if you if there's not something inside you that makes you want to do it. Well, or at the least reason why, it the reason why I enjoyed it was because um, I got results out of it. 
that there was silverware to show for it or do you know what I mean? There was performances that showed for it or... Well, how did you notice that? Like, what was the first moment when you kind of realised, oh, hang on, I can actually I can actually get really good at this, you know? Yeah, um, 1999 would have been a huge confidence booster. I was 22 years of age. Um, so uh, we win the All-Ireland, Cork win the All-Ireland after nine years out of the wilderness. And then at, at, at that stage, like having an All-Ireland as a 22-year-old, uh, that gives me... Uh, that gives me some kind of bit of inkling to hang on here you know um, there could be a career out of this do you know what I mean but at that stage I realised that I'm far from the finished article like you know and uh, you just need to go back to basics Um, um, but like then again you have to be playing with a good team to kind of for your individual you know whatever talents that you had to get recognised as well and then I'm fortunate enough, like, to be in the dressing room, like, kind of, with fellas that carry cock for 10 years, do you know what I mean? Um, like, like uh, Brian Cochran, Jordine, Don Logue, Damon O'Sullivan, the two O'Connor twins, um, Tom Kenny, John Garner, one O'Connor, like, uh, I don't think, I don't think I'll be involved with as a special group of fellas as them. Ever, do you know what I mean? In yeah. my next phase of life, ever. Did the attitude that you have that you talk about there is that one of the things that pulled you through um, career-wise after your car accident, where you picked up the? Could you maybe tell us the injury that you picked up there? Yeah, uh, no problem at all. So look, um, I'm two days after my 24th birthday. Uh, I'm regularly playing my cork. Um, um, uh, I'm haven't hit my straps, but becoming a consistent performer. So, like, I'm King Kong at that stage. Obviously, do you know what I mean? Um, I'm young, single, getting female attention. Kind of, I think I'm Superman. And then I go up to a hurling promotion. Guinness were doing a hurling promotion. This was a couple of days out from the first round of the championship, 2001 against Limerick. So I finish with Dublin. I'm on my way home. Going through Tipperary, out of all the places, you know, talk about <laughs> enemy country. So I try and I try and overtake a car, which on reflection was a stupid thing to do, you know. Uh, but I'm rushing late for training, and you know yourself, like week of the championship, you don't want to be late on the pitch because, uh, as Donald Grady says, you don't want to kind of do things that fester like a disease amongst the group. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so I go for it, and like. I, I kind of realise, like, kind of, oh, this is a bad move here. And then, I, I, like, I don't get time to kind of recover my mistake. I just see these flashing lights, and then all of a sudden, bang, I'm caught on the wrong side of the road. It's a head-on collision. Bang. So my car is facing towards, oh, sorry, so I was driving towards Cork. All I remember is the car facing towards Dublin. Mm. Um, uh, uh, the radio was still on, blaring. Do you know, the radio, you know, I see steam just coming out of the front of the car and um, uh, I don't feel any pain initially, uh, but I kind of get my senses and I realise like, that I'm in a bad, bad accident here and next I see a big lump halfway up my leg, which I think is just a bruising or a swelling, do you know, and then, um, so in fairness to the guy that I kind of, no one dies, thankfully, do you know, um, God, or someone must have been kind of looking after me that day, or us, because basically the, the, the car that I kind of uh, hit head-on collision, there's, they have a full house in that car, so the driver comes out, and he could have, like, lambasted me and had every right to, but he checks to see how I am, and he tries to get me out of the car, and that's when I kind of realise that I'm struggling. I can't even get my leg out of the car. And um, so I buckle when I try and land it, and I, 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 I know, look, I'm in a bit of trouble. So look... Between the long and the short, I'm brought to Nina Hospital uh, where they do x-rays and the pain is getting sore now at this stage. Like, And then uh, it's a foreign doctor, kind of, uh, I say either Indian or Pakistan, uh, extract kind of breaks the news to me that I'm after kind of rupturing my patella tendon. That to me at that stage didn't mean anything. I said, what does that mean? Like, give me in normal English. He says, look, that is your kneecap halfway up my... So I kind of... But still on, like, to my naivety, I still think I'm okay for so next So what you Sunday. thought was a bit of swelling or oh, something on your thigh. It's actually your kneecap. It's my kneecap. So your kneecap is kept intact where it is by your patella tendon. It goes over your kneecap. So you, you, have, the upper, you have the upper tendon, which connects with your kind of 
with your thigh bone to the kneecap and then you have the lower chain of the patella which connects your like kneecap to your shin bone. So I completely sever, rupture, clean slit the lower chamber, right? So that forces the thigh muscles, the recoil or pull up your kneecap. So that's how the kneecap ends up halfway up my... So he breaks the news that it's my kneecap. Um, but even then, like, you know, like I was so naive, so green as a 24-year-old. I, I, I still think, ah, sure, look... They can patch it. I'll be okay for Sunday. This is Thursday. I'll be okay for Sunday. And then, and then, um, I ring, I ring the Cork medical doctor, Doctor Khan, who's a good man for pranks himself. So I tell Khan, I'm in a car crash. He thinks I'm just pulling Take the pace. Yeah, he thinks I'm pulling the pace. Um, and then when I kind of repeat to him, couple of, no, I'm in strife here, Khan. So Khan arranges me to get an operation. Oh, sorry, he arranges me to get transferred from Nina Hospital down to CUH in Cork. So I'm operated on, and then just before going in theatre, the surgeon kind of talks to me. He kind of tells me, like, um, you know, the operation that he's going to do. And I ask him still, I said, look, I kind of get this feeling that, look, because, you know, you see people with white coats kind of whispering behind you, like, and you just know it's bad, and they're looking at this chart, and they're pointing, mm-hmm. and you just kind of say, oh, that, like, this isn't good now. So, so... He talked to me. I said, look, Doc, I, I, I guess Sunday's out of the question. He says, no, you won't be playing Sunday. And uh, I said, look, well, if Cork win, they have a game three weeks after that, surely I'll be okay. He says, no, 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 you, look, you won't be okay. He says, look, you won't be playing this year. And that's where it really hits me. Like, kinda, I remember going into the theatre with tears going on my eyes because like, it's, it's, it's my first setback, really. And it wasn't done in a hurling pitch. You know, it was done off the pitch. Um, so I have the operation. Dr. Khan comes to me. He was the, he was the first guy to come to me. He says, look, this, the operation was success. But in fairness to Khan, he tries to put me in the picture. He says, look, the injury that you did, Sean Oak, you know, not many people come back from that. Uh, he was just trying to break the news subtly. But like, whether he meant it or not, I don't know. Well, he'll definitely say he <laughs> did, but he says not many people come back. So he says he says not, uh, um, he says that was a serious, but not many people come back to play competitive sport. On top of that, I don't know whether he meant that or not. Oh, sorry, where he says, but you will. I know. Oh, you right, will. okay. Yeah. Sorry, that's. Uh, I don't know whether he meant. It. He said to say he say he he did mean it, <sighs> but um, he was trying to give me good and bad news at the same time. But funny enough, like that injury is forgotten about until I mentioned it in the book because. Um, if I hadn't recovered from that injury, I'd be known as the guy, oh, 24 years of age, yeah, kind of had a potential career, but it finished. Yeah. Do you know, but people forget about it, like, which, which is a good thing. Do you know what I mean? I, I come back, I have a tough two years um, trying to get the knee rehabbed as best I can. And then when I get back playing, I, I become very frustrated because I can't do things like that the mind wants me to do, but the body's just not reacting. And then I have like, post-injury kind of effects that you have with big injuries like like the knee being puffed like for for like for the couple of winters after that my knee just swelled during winter you know during winter training um it gets very tight um you'd have to loosen it up a good bit get plenty of dp into it winter green you name it like just slap it on just get out get it warmed up so i go through tough two years trying to um trying to get back to the standards that I have in my head. But I, 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 I get there, and then funny enough, it was worth, it, 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 it was worth all the torch and pain because we, we embark in a, like a, an unbelievable yeah. treat to four years after that. And I do think know. just what you described there and your recovery from that is another indication of this mentality that you had. I want to talk about your father's influence on that um, because... Sean O'Hall being by. Yeah. What can you say about him? Probably the toughest coach I ever had. Well, of course, I never had, you know. Uh, so that has been, like, um, my parents have been a very strong influence, like, ever since I can remember, you know. And um, people forget, I grew up in Australia, you know, even though I was born in Rotuma, my mum's island, lived in Cork for the last 25 years. But I spent my first 10 years in Sydney, and I had a great childhood, like, uh, like uh, I, I, I cry when I talk about Sydney because... I often think about the life I didn't have after that because I had my, as a 10-year-old, my career pan out. Like, you know, I was a huge rugby league fan. Um, we, I was going to go to secondary school nearby, which is, a you know, a bastion of rugby league players have gone through it. I was going to get picked up, scouted, play a career. Um, 
get a lovely looking girl and then have a big condo down by Coogee or Bonai Beach and live heavily ever after. So all of that is taken away. Do you know what I mean? But but ever since then, dad has been dad has been there as, as, as that mom and dad and introduced him to sport. Do you know? And and if there's one thing I never regret is them introduced me to sport because basically out of all the facets of my life, sport has given me kind of great pleasure. But I like dad is a hard guy to please. Like you know, he's just a hard guy to please. And no matter what you did, was never good enough. Like do you know what I mean? And then you're constantly hearing this. I don't know. And not alone myself. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm the eldest of like five others. Like you know, I, my other brothers play sport and they try and play it. Like you know. Uh, at the top level, so dad is in their ear constantly, and then, and then, like I What's don't get to enjoy, I don't get to enjoy my underage years as much as I probably should have. Do you know what I mean? And um, because you're under this influence, like of having to perform, having to perform, you need to win, or you're a loser. Do you know what I mean? And then, uh, and then, as, and then, what happens when you're under that kind of scrutiny? You buckle. Would he say that? Would he say you're a loser? Uh, uh, no, he said you were a disgrace today. You were ashamed to the family. You know stuff like that. Like, and then, and then when I hear words like that today, by it sends chills down my spine. Like, you know, because of like, uh, and and then deep down inside, he meant well. I, I I know he meant well, but he had funny ways of kind of expressing it or showing it. Like, you know, what kind of age were you when when he started that? Uh, I'd say my first encounter would have been a six, seven year old. I mentioned in the book. Um, uh, I play a kids game um, guy that I'm marking you know skins me I don't follow I, I don't bother chasing back I just leave him go and then uh, and then I can see what dad was saying he says look you don't you never give up you you, you chase back you never but he <laughs> he threw me out of the car do you know what I mean like on the side of the road and still to this day I don't cry I don't flinch I'm, I'm, I'm a bit in shock do you know I said Jesus Christ he's after throwing me out of the car like there, who's a year younger than me, is in the car, bawling his eyes out. He, you know, and then, and then I just stay there. And you have busy Sydney life going past me, and I'm just wondering what the hell is it. And then he comes back, he picks me up, and then we go home. And then for the following week, he has me doing sprints up and down the yard, like he says, if a fella pass it does. And look, I get that. Do you know what I mean? Like you need, you need, you need feedback. Do you know what I mean? Like, can I, it'd be very wrong of him or any parent, like who has a kid playing in sport to say that they're great if they're not doing, do you know what I mean? And you point out, but he had a very extreme way of... Was his idea specifically that you would become a professional sportsman or that this was what you were going to do in your life or was he trying to teach you something more general about life? Um, that I still don't know to this day. I, uh, I'm still working out. Um, well, all that I know is this was part of a, like, dad wanted it. Ever since he worked in Australia, he wanted to come back. Thurland, do you know what I mean? So, like, I know, like, kind of, th- there was no chance that we were gonna stay in Australia, and then me, kind of, you know, having a chance of kind of trying to become a professional sports player, you know, and either Aussie Rules or Rugby League, because we were we were always gonna end back home, do you know what I mean? But I'd say, uh, I'd say it was just a general lesson of you know not giving up and then not giving up the not giving up the uh, chase and the goals, and I do that with kids, you know, when I'm coaching kids in my own local club, like you know, you see a guy and. But you, 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 you just tell him, but uh, he, he had very extreme ways. And, and then he had expectations were, which were very high. But where the friction comes in with me, but I, like, in all of this, I do not respond. I do not answer back. I just, because he's my dad, you just give him that respect and you listen to him because your parents are, you know, two, two critical pillars of society kind of people in front of you. And I always give him that respect, the same way I give every other manager, you know, the respect. And you go along with it. But where it gets, where for me, where for me, kind of the penny drops for me is, I'm, I, I, I'm, I, we come to Cork, I'm playing hurling, which is a very technical game. Even the best of Irish kids don't even make it into country, do you know what I mean? And here I am, like, kind of expected to be a Chrissy Ring or a Nicky English or whatever within a couple of years like, and I think he gets impatient with it do you know what I mean and then uh, and then you get his barrage and then and then soon like the the, the resentment that I have is I don't get to live or I don't get to deliver what I I don't get to de- develop what I want to do it's what he wants to do yeah, and he's and that's living it through he's living it through 
myself, Deo, Satanta, Isaac. What struck you know? me when I was reading about this, Sean Oak, uh, uh, reading the book, I mean, the thought in my head almost straight away was this sounds a bit like Andre Agassi's dad and then I get to I a point where you it, actually yeah. mentioned Agassi I, I mentioned it someone, someone give me a good friend of mine kind of who'll be very close to me knows kind of now many people would know how strict dad was like right. with me you know they would have seen him as a nice placid guy like at games like but it was a different ball game when you went into the county. Agassi says, home. So yeah. like basically Agassi he says, said, I, I, dash on Oak. He says that, that like you, you would, that would strike a call with you, which it does. Agassi says at one point in the book, I hate tennis. I hate, this is how he was feeling as a kid. I hate tennis, hate it with all my heart. And still I keep playing, keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because yeah. I have no choice. Is that what you identify with? You feel like you didn't have the choice? Yeah, look, any notions of me playing soccer now or rugby union was just notions you know um, it was just going to be Gaelic games well he wouldn't let you I'd say he would have let me but he would have support, he wouldn't have supported me I don't think he would have driven me to games or picked me up because um, he was like he's a proud Irish man he's, he's a very nationalist guy you know so Gaelic games was the only game f- like that we were going to play and look that look I, and I had no problem with that but just his fanaticism of trying to you know get us to kind of uh, uh, do well. And he'd always say, look, this is for your own good. And then he's, his biggest danger was like that. And he prays that he would heap on us like that that would be the downside in our career. Do oh, he'd I mean? be worried that you would... Just, yeah, yeah. Agassi yeah. eventually it takes ownership though of his tennis. Did there come a point where you st- started to realise you were doing this for yourself rather than doing it for your dad anymore? Okay, I tell you, the, 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 the turning point, say... With my relationship with dad, and then my, my like my hurling career, where as you say, I I I start to try and get away, but ignore you know dad's kind of constant is at school level, and then early years with Cork at underage level, where I'm dealing with like Don O'Grady, Jimmy Barry Murphy, um, even underage mentors with the club, and who have played the game. They're knowledgeable and they're telling you you're doing a damn good job there. Right. And then that's where I start to... Because at that stage, I'm just taking... Maybe this is par for the course in every household. Do you know what I mean? Like, And then when I start to kind of... Uh, like, uh, But don't get me wrong, don't look at it to be the first fella to let you know if you didn't play well. Do you know what I mean? Like, Or any other... So when they're saying, look, you're doing a great job, just tweak a couple of things, but look, continue. You're, you're a valued member... And that gives me great uplift, like, do you know what I mean? And then, and then, and then as the years go on, it's the same with my other brothers as well. When Satanta was like, dad wanted to always have his last say, and we just listened to him because he was dad, but we just. Have in, you spoken in, to him since the book? Uh, I, I haven't, but I talked to him, yeah. Oh, I'm just wondering what he might think of. Ah, look, you I, I, I'm sure dad wouldn't be happy of what I, you know, what I said. And people have gone on to me saying, geez, you're a bit hard on him, and is that needed? But. It's, it's it's my story. It's not your story. It's not her story. It's, it's it's my story. I lived through this, and if I was being to the unknown self, be true. If I was like, if I talk about as honest and as openly as other things, well, well, you know, I I I feel it'd be wrong if I kind of hid that, yeah. you know, and just pretended everything was, uh, and. Uh, and another inspiration on between, behind all of this, people have this perception of me being involved with Cork 20 years that he got it easy, you know, to see me kind of involved with sponsorship deals. He's used here, he's up on the billboard there, and they look at my mug for 20 years. And after playing, you've won a few silverware. Um, lucky that he's working. And they think like that, this fella was, you know, Silver Spoon Brigade, and I'm trying to say it's not. You also, yeah. When I'm you're talk- an ethnic kid coming to a new country where... Do you know what I mean? You have to you have to go through the struggles of your dad who wants you to do well, but he joys he he pushes a point of like uh like he nearly kills you mentally, do you know what I mean? And then and then and then and then when you're trying to grow up in a new environment where half my features is dark, which is new to a new place, do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's that a struggle, a, man. That's it's, also it's your, your dad's idea, because you were saying um he always wanted to go back to Ireland and it sounded like you definitely didn't at the time. I just uh, yeah, on that What the, was his reason? His reason why was he just what you call it, uh, and look, I get it. He has every you know he wants to go back to the country that he was born. Like you know, every fella's entitled to that. Um, uh, not alone that, then I'd say 
dad wants his kids like kind of speaking Irish, which he probably he didn't have a chance to speak Irish. He wants them playing Gaelic games, which he probably didn't get a chance to play at. My dad would have been a very good Gaelic footballer, and he would have played representative football in Australia. He he would have represented Queensland, but probably I'm sure his dream was to play with Fermanagh in Crow Park. Do you know what I mean? But but so you get the picture of that look. Yeah, he wants to go home for himself, but he wants us to kind of experience this. But he, he as, as I mentioned, he starts to live his dream through us. Like, you know Sean, like you I mean? mentioned them with regard to, well, you, know, you obviously felt very different and you certainly didn't feel Irish, I guess, when you first came over. Yeah. You did suffer racist abuse. Interestingly, you say, I didn't feel disappointed or hurt when I heard it. Um, Maybe that was a, a, when you heard it very first in Cork City Centre or... Well, funny enough, on our journey here, Dad had mentioned, he says, look, you're going to get remarks because you're different, you know. So he did prepare us somewhat, but he didn't say to the level that it was going to be at, do you know what I mean? Like, he he didn't say that. And the first two years were the toughest, like, do you know, uh, because we were getting used to this new place, and then I'm sure Cork wasn't ready for... <laughs> Us, you know, landing in kind of like we sure we might as well be like kind of Martians from outer space landing in Cork like in 1988. Like, you know, there wasn't many, there wasn't many kind of ethnic groups in Cork at that stage. Um, so, uh, uh, Two years is a struggle. Um, so it did hurt during those two years. It was maybe just oh, and 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 it, sorry, the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. Sorry, I lost my trail at all. Look, we could have said this back to mum or dad, but we don't. Right. We don't. We, we, we just, like, and they're saying, look, if you do engage it, just ignore them, walk on, and then that's the way, that's the way. Uh, and use it even on the field. I know you use it as almost a positive. You felt that the, yeah. uh, you, there was no need getting wound up by it. It showed that you were the one who was on top, which is. Uh, I, I use it, I, 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 yeah, I use it to my advantage that way. You know, um, it, it, it's probably. I'm involved in kind of racist campaigns, you know, and they tell you like that you you should speak out and you know. But back then, I you know literally didn't do exactly, you know, I didn't do the protocol thing. But at that, you you have to remember this is all in 1988. Like, if you're going up to referee saying he called me a black kind of nigger, you know, like the referee, like sure he wasn't equipped to deal with anything, like you know, of that kind, like Mm. so. You're just better off just for, and then I just use it to my advantage, like as a one-up. Like, do you know what I mean? That you you must be doing something well if he's trying to knock you off. Do you know if he's trying to knock you off? You're straight, like, and if he's resorted to this, and then I I just I I I, I just use it that way, like, kind of over my next uh, over my next years at Unreal. Yeah, I saw it today. Aaron Cunningham's father, Joey, said that he's not going to attend the Cross Midland Kilku match. This was the match at which Joey was racially abused last year, and yeah. a Kilku player got a ban. A Kilku supporter might have got a life ban out of that. Um, it, it, these sort of initiatives that you're involved in obviously are hugely positive. It, does, does it strike you as disappointing that they're even needed in this day and age? It does, like, you know, it shouldn't have a place, like, anywhere, not alone sport, like, you know, um, it shouldn't. But in the end of the day, on like, human beings are flawed, you know, and it's, as long as human beings are going to be there, you're still going to, you know, it's still going to be open to that, like, mm. you know. Um, and then that's why it's important to have programmes, especially kids of very young age, to, that this is a no-no, do you know what I mean? Where back then... There wasn't any education programs ran. Do you know what I mean? Like, kind of. So, um, uh, so my answer to that is: look, you don't want to see it happening, but I think it'd be utopia to think like that. You know, we're going to carry on and it won't happen again. Like it will, because the fact that there's human being intervention involved and it's a human being trait, and the Irish are not the only people. Do you know what I mean? That it happens everywhere. Like, do you yeah. know? Sean, I want to just mention one more small um, part from your book, which. Uh, isn't the most uh, shocking in any way but we've talked about this in the last while the tradition of GA teams sprinting out of the tunnel oh, at yeah. full speed now I personally <laughs> yeah. I, I put this theory on air before yeah. and I think that the team that sprints out the well uh, ridicule really because my theory is that the team that runs out the fastest that really sprints out there is a team that's going to win the game what do you think? Um, and funny Good science Owen, behind that I'm sure Like Owen I would have grown up I wouldn't have grown up with teams if, 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 if anyone can remember back to the old days 
the teams used to come out of the canal end, you know, canal yeah. stroke, Hogan stand, and they'll be sprinted like Liffin Christie and Carlos. <laughs> so when you're a young kid watching All Orleans and you're saying, Jesus, that's, that's the dream, like to sprint out of that kind of tunnel. And I, I think it's Codswallop, you know. I, I, like, I, uh, I, I, I think that you should, you know, just go out nice and relaxedly, you know, trying to conserve as much energy as you can. So, uh, and then, like, I've had this conversation with my brothers who play Aussie rules, like, they'll saunter onto the pitch. <laughs> they don't sprint onto the pitch like they'll have, because unless if you're properly warmed inside, you could pull a hammy, like, you know, you could yeah. tweak something, like, you know, in that sprint. Um, um, so it's been a traditional thing, and it's and and as we know in GA, it's very hard to change traditional things. Like you know, um, like the sprint out of the tunnels, like getting rid of the boy our team boys band. Like you know, in the GA, <laughs> like it's just un, un, unimaginable. So, but uh, um, so towards the end of my career, I just jogged. I let whoever wanted to sprint. Like it wasn't consciously spoken about in the dress room. If you wanted to sprint, sprint. If you wanted to jog, jog. But I always, if you always look at me, like. Going out, I, I'm always the last because I could let the sprinters off. Yeah, there's plenty of energy to be expended once you get out there. Off, I just sounded out in the pitch. Yeah. Sean O'Halpin sounds like a good, uh, good philosophy. I think it's the book is called Sean O'Halpin: The Autobiography. It's been absolutely brilliant having you talking so honestly about all of that. So thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just. The bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football available on IrishTimes.com. Second Captains and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. 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 I really appreciate Sean O coming into the studio and speaking like that. We've interviewed him on a few occasions in the past, and he's, uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he's a lot of sports people were used to over the years kind of um, hide their light under a bushel again. Is that the yeah. correct phrase? And uh, Sean Oak certainly doesn't do that. He's always um, fairly straight up and has a lot to say. Was, uh, we picked it up at the start of the show, I mentioned it at the start of the show, and just chatting to him about his father. Just really incredible. And it's not our place to necessarily make comments on Sean Og's father. He was doing so himself. But I am always interested in that dynamic. You know, you get these, his dad might say, certainly Agassi's dad and Tiger Woods' dad and Serena Williams' dad. These guys might say, well, yeah, we were, we were hard on our kids, but they succeeded. And that's what matters at the end of the day. I think yeah. there are other ways. I don't know if every kid whose parent uh, sort of applies that early era Alex Ferguson ethic to the parenting necessarily goes on to become the number one in their sport though mm. you know for every Sean Og or Andre Agassi or Tiger Woods or Serena Williams I don't know if Tiger Woods belongs on that list was was Earl one of those type of dads? oh Earl was pretty Earl now, was, now Tiger never Tiger, presented Tiger, him for it no he doesn't but, seem to have yeah but uh, Earl Woods had Tiger had military guys basically using techniques that is to distract him from playing. He would throw balls in front of him as he's trying to hit. Maybe that's not as severe, but he was he was pretty hard on mm. young Tiger. But Tiger didn't resent. Not him. everybody necessarily. It doesn't necessarily pay off in in every case. I mean, you hear about a certain tiny number of the ones that do, and then I guess the that ones that don't, you don't tend to hear about. Time now for U.S. Marathon Boston's victory in the World Series. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. We're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Well, Brian, have you? Um, are you wearing your Boston Red Sox gear, cap and all, into work today? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, I just uh, got to work on here Thursday morning, Halloween here, and um, and some f- listener of ours had gone to Fenway Park for games one and two, and had brought back a satchel of hats for the whole show, the Murph and Mac show here on KMBR. So the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> I actually have a Red Sox World Series hat. And I just got it this morning. So, yeah, bandwagon galore. Uh, no, what a, what, a, what a time. 
what a moment for them. What a what a decade plus for New England. I mean, in the time you and I have been doing these shows, how many times do we return to the city of Boston, the old town itself, for another championship? And they got it again last night at Fenway Park. Although I'm sure, as you well know, Owen, that was the first time they'd won one in Fenway Park since 1918. As they had when they won in 04 and 07, they clinched them on the road. Mm. And of course, there's something extra special about doing it at home, especially at that ballpark, which is probably the most famous. Well. You can make an argument in American sports. What's the what's the cathedral of American sports? And some might say old Yankee Stadium. Some might say Lambeau Field for Green Bay Packers football. But some might say Wrigley Field in Chicago. But, boy, you could make a strong argument that Fenway Park is the cathedral of American sports for tradition and history and atmosphere and, and all that. And, and for them to win it there, I'd never seen it in my lifetime. Really, really a fun, fun sight to see. Yeah, it did seem to be, well, of course, it's a very different experience. You were there, we, I remember speaking to you, uh, remember it well, after San Francisco had finally won their first World Series in how many years, uh, whatever amount of years that was, and that was away from home, and it was a weird thing, and you uh, told us at the time you were out on the field, and it was incredible, but I'd say it was almost surreal. It's, it's kind of a strange thing to do it in front of supporters who don't really want you, well, not they 100% don't want you to do it, so it's just a quirk, really. I mean, I say if Boston could have won it in Game 5, they would have won it in Game 5. But uh, it's no harm for the as another chapter to their story to do it in front of their own fans. Particularly yeah. this year, I guess, given all the emotion. And, 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 and this is something we crank our memories back six months on to, to the Boston Marathon bombing. You know, and, and there's, no, there's no way to avoid the role that that played in this whole team because it happened right at the start of baseball season. It happened on what's called Patriots Day in Boston. That's when they run the Boston Marathon. And part of the Patriots Day festivities in Boston are that the Red Sox play that morning. You know, usually baseball games are played at night. If they are played in the day, it's usually on the weekends around 1 o'clock. But Boston has this tradition of playing an 11 a.m. game on Patriots Day so that people can theoretically finish, can go to a Red Sox game and still see the end of the Boston Marathon. That's all part of that whole tapestry there in, in Boston. And that day had happened. You know, Patriots Day, the, the Red Sox had played, and then everybody was at the Boston Marathon. And then we know what happened from there, the bombing. And so sad and, uh, you know, such a joyous occasion and such a historic occasion in Boston that was marred maybe forever uh, by, the, by the tragic bombings. And the way the Red Sox linked themselves to it. They, I mean, we, we all... If you don't remember, you have to remember that six months ago, their hero, David Ortiz, the guy they call Big Poppy from the Dominican Republic, who's now won his third World Series ring as a Red Sox, you know, grabbed the microphone uh, at the ceremony uh, the next when when Fenway Park reopened after the bombing and famously said, this is our blanking city. He used the F word live on TV. It was being nationally televised. And, you know, in America, we have these... FCC regulations. You can't swear on TV. You're not allowed to. But David Ortiz broke all the rules when he said that. And he said it uh, uh, from the heart and the place, you know, just absolutely erupted. It was, it was one of those galvanizing moments when he said that. And that from that moment on, you couldn't not think about that last night when they won the World Series in Fenway with this team that was not I think what everybody said it was not the most talented team. It didn't have fifty home, you know, guys who hit fifty home runs or guys who you know struck out three hundred batters on the mound. There was more of a a, a ragtag collection of guys. Uh, you know, that, it's the old value of chemistry. We always talk about the new era of analysis and data and statistics, and these guys were were a blow for for chemistry. And it really, and it goes back to the marathon bombings. I read this, and I'm not sure if I can confirm this that people had gone down to Boylston Street last night and we're kissing the finish line of the Boston Marathon uh, in the wild celebration. I haven't somebody mm. reported that it would seem to be true and it shows you the link of of the city and how the city came together. You mentioned Ortiz the leadership he showed off the field after that tragedy Brian he showed a lot of it on the field as well. I think he was their standout performer. We're talking about this now. Now you got to start talking about city you know every city in the world that has sport has its all-time greats, you know? Whether it's, uh, you know, your boy Roy Keane from the 1990 World Cup from Cork, right, or whatever, or uh, Georgie Best from Belfast, right, or whoever. But you got Boston's a city that has greats. I mean, they have Ted Williams, the guy who was considered the greatest hitter who ever lived. They have Bill Russell, 
who won 11 championships as a Boston Celtic. They have Tom Brady, who's won three two Super Bowls as a quarterback. You have to start including David Ortiz somewhere in the conversation of all-time greats in the city of Boston. I, I shouldn't neglect ice hockey. They're a huge hockey town, the Boston Bruins. Bobby Orr is a legend. We were talking to some people from Boston on our show, and they said, well, Ortiz isn't quite yet at Larry Bird, another name who won three titles, Larry Bird or Bobby Orr level, but maybe just a hair below them. We're talking about in a city of, of, that has an incredible sports history that goes back over 100 years of, of thriving pro sports teams, that, that David Ortiz is in the Pantheon. He's now won three World Series, and he's the only guy who was part of the 04, 07, and 13 champions. And then on what he did in this World Series at the end of his career, winning the MVP award by getting 11 hits and 15 at-bats, which is insane. You know, in baseball, when you hit 300, 3 out of 10, you are wildly successful. When you hit 11 out of 15 in one World Series, when the pressure's on every single at-bat, you are a legend. Not to mention that in, in the run-up to the World Series, when they were playing the Detroit Tigers in the American League Championship, and they lost game one and were well, well on their way to losing game two, five to one, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he hit the grand slam that tied the game, that sent Torrey Hunter's legs over the fence, and then the cop from Boston's mm. arms up in the air, that guy. So that's what Poppy did. He's a special, special guy. He is a... He's one of those guys who, when you're you're a sports fan and he's on your team, he's one of those guys you wear his jersey, you enjoy everything about him. He's got a warmth about him. He's got a charisma about him. Now the conversation turns to does he go to the, the all-time baseball Hall of Fame, Cooperstown. He, of course, quietly was one of those guys who in the early OOs had a positive drug test. So, you know, now we start wondering, do you judge uh, uh, steroid users? differently if they're nice guys you know <laughs> Barry Bonds is such a jerk everybody hated him it's easy to hate and vilify Bonds but Bonds is the greatest player anybody ever saw but everybody hates him Ortiz pers- as they said in the movie Pulp Fiction oh and personality goes a long way remember when they were talking about pigs <laughs> personality goes a long way well David Ortiz is in that spot he is as beloved as that city has seen in decades yeah I can't believe it Brian we're, try- we're trying to have a nice quiet conversation about baseball and performance-enhancing drugs have to come into it at some point. But listen, yeah, I, I do want to talk to you about the Cardinals, Brian, because I was watching the match last night up until around the seventh inning when, uh, to be honest, the eyes started getting a bit droopy oh, yeah. on the I couch. And, that far, congrats to you. Yeah, no, I did all right. I, but the Cardinals were an absolute joke. I mean, I could have done better than some of those guys. There were balls dribbling underneath them. At one stage, there was a, a, a hitter for the Red Sox caught between first and second base. The two Cardinals, all they had to do was tag him out or stand on the base and get him out. They kept throwing the ball over him. He kept dodging them and then eventually manages to leave them in his dust yeah. and get back to first base. It was a, a, a kid could have got that guy out. Yeah, so what you saw is a team that won 97 games this year, which is the tides with the Red Sox for the most. They were the best team in the National League. They eliminated the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had this incredible payroll and this Cuban sensation. Yasiel Puig. The Cardinals are this amazing machine of baseball. And look what you saw last night you saw, and how they played the last couple of games. They just came up small in the moment. And this is what happens. And some think that especially happens at Fenway Park, it can double down. Because that, that is, unlike any other park in America, the closest place the fans are on top of you. Other stadiums that are bigger and more spacious and more with their corporate suites and everything don't have that crazed mania atmosphere of the fans right in your ear. And some think that that affects teams. And and in baseball, when you're in an elimination game where if you lose, your season is over, and things start to go against you in an uh, an enemy stadium, it's amazing to see the the, the avalanche of just how the human being kind of shrinks a little bit. And you saw from about the time Shane Victorino hit that ball off the wall – to make it 3 nothing, and, and the Red Sox and Fenway Park started to come unglued. The Cardinals, a great team, all of a sudden got deeply affected by the moment, and they started coming up. And there's like few things as inevitable as a baseball team marching to its death, and that was the Cardinals last night. Yeah, it's amazing because, you know, you only get one team that wins, and you have this incredible year, and you won the National League, and you won 97 games, and you go home upset, and that's the way – that's sport in any level, and uh, the Red Sox cheer, and the Cardinals go home with nothing. Brian, get that Red Sox cap on you, and thanks for talking to us. All the best, Owen. Take care. We touched on American sports without Brian on Tuesday. Ken, if you remember, I was talking about the worst position in sport possibly being 
international rules goalkeeper for the Australian team, but one of us mentioned punt returner as well yeah. in the NFL. Uh, largely, whatever about when you're actually kicking the ball, I guess that is your job. But the awkward bit where sometimes the other guy comes running straight back at you and you have to try to make a tackle and oh, generally you just kind of slip off there because you're not built. Well, Pat McAfee of the Colts, mm. this was uh, tweeted to me, bit of a monster of a punt returner. I know you're impressed with the hit that he put in on a Denver Broncos player last week. A very big man. Um, I suppose if you're if 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 you're a kicker in a sport that actually doesn't require you to run around at all, there is a chance to put on a little bit of weight. You know what's the problem? And on this occasion, it seemed to come in uh, useful for him as he managed to angle his run precisely to intercept. Uh, this uh, wide receiver and smash him out over the sideline but uh, yeah not a, not something you see too often that it was a big thanks to AT Fox for tweeting me and bringing uh, my attention to that one what's coming up at 6 o'clock tonight Ken? that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really well you can laugh walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me well, you heard the man at the beginning of that clip, uh, Sepp, or at the beginning of that series of clips, Sepp Blatter. We were talking about his comments on Ronaldo and Messi on the last program. Since uh, which time, Spain went completely nuts. And Radio Marca demanding the resignation of Sepp because he cruelly mocked Cristiano Ronaldo. Ronaldo himself responding to it on his Facebook in a ridiculously over-the-top way. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And also talk maybe about Newcastle United's over-the-top reaction to some uh, journalists writing nasty things about them in the local paper. Gary Kasparov, the great chess grandmaster, is looking to become the president of that sport's World Federation, but the guy he's going up against, Kirsan Ilyumjanov, is described as a millionaire Buddhist former goat herder and politician, okay so far, who believes aliens will destroy the planet if people don't play enough chess, a game he says they invented. This is as described by Simon Osborne of The Independent in the UK, who's been writing about this. Simon, he sounds like a colourful character. Yeah, no, he is, by all accounts. I, I have to admit, I hadn't heard of this guy before. I read about the attempt by Garry Kasparov to unseat him at the head of the World Chess Federation, which uh, a federation that sounds to me about as odd as this guy, Um But he, there, he has been written about, and it sounds as if, in almost every respect, he's, he's a bit of a loon. Um, although he is the head of World Chess and has been for about 20 years, um, and was also the president of the uh, province or the republic um, in which he was born on the Caspian Sea, Kalmykia, I believe it's called. Um, and so has some talent as a, as a kind of leader and politician. But yeah, the, the alien stuff. Uh, what is the alien stuff? What's, yeah, can you flesh that out a bit for us? What, what has his interaction with alien life forms been? Well, he says he said in about 1998, so this would have been three years after he... Uh, became president of the Chess Federation, that a spaceship um, landed on his balcony um, uh, at his apartment in Moscow. Um, and little space guys came out of it um, in, I think they were yellow spacesuits, um, and then took him away to a star, a distant star, um, in their spaceship from the balcony. Um, and I'm not sure what they got up to while he was there, but he came back with the impression that um, if chess weren't played enough, um, that these aliens would come back and destroy the whole world. Um, and that evidently has motivated him in his role as the, the boss of world chess. And this is a big organization, so it's, it's, it's a sort of striking in itself, his... Um, his belief in aliens, but also striking that a guy with those beliefs has um, managed to hang on to this role for so long. Yeah, but he's obviously got talents somewhere. Um, Gary Kasparov, if I was him or if I was advising him, I guess I would tell him to maybe uh, use that alien stuff as uh, part of his own campaign to to try to discredit his opponent. Is Kasparov doing that? Yeah, he he is. He's he's, he's a bit of an operator by all accounts. Also, Kasparov, he's not massively popular from what I gather um, considered to be rather aggressive, bullying, 
but yes, he is using that as a way of suggesting it might be time for change. He, on his own website, he sort of interviewed himself effectively um, and uh, said that one of the big problems with this guy, Lumzunov, uh, is that when you Google the Chess Federation, rather than hearing about how amazing and exciting chess is, you just get stuff about uh, alien abductions. Um, you get stuff about Muhammad Gaddafi as well. His, Gaddafi, yeah, yeah, can you tell us yeah. a bit about that? Pub, the, I think it was his well, last public got, appearance. Yeah, he has, he has friends in odd places, this guy. Um, uh, yeah, in 2011, um, at the height of the civil war in Libya, this guy, Alumzhinov, travelled to Tripoli um, for a kind of exhibition game of chess with Gaddafi um, in a hotel um, that was carefully made to look uh, you know, anonymous so that, uh, uh, so that he couldn't be traced. But um, I, I think it was to do with a policy that Gaddafi had for chess in schools in Libya. Um, but the timing was striking, and there were rumors that this guy was a kind of Russian envoy sent to convince Gaddafi to ease up a bit. Um, and they played a game. Apparently it was a draw, um, a kind of diplomatic draw, I think. Because this guy is apparently not bad at chess, but I think he realized that beating Gaddafi might not be the best way Especially forward. away from home. Maybe exactly, it was, yeah. yeah, exactly. You've got to be careful. And then, But then it didn't work, because I think it was only about three weeks later that Gaddafi was captured and killed. Um, and this was his last public appearance. Um, and, and, well, maybe by his standards, not the oddest, but it was pretty odd. Uh, Kasparov, I, mean, I guess this would seem like a logical enough career move, given his background as a chess grandmaster, one of the most recognisable chess faces, yeah. I guess, in the world. But he, he had been looking at uh, maybe loftier goals uh, up till quite recently. He has been involved in politics. He's kind of been putting it up to Putin over the last number of years. Is he shelving that? Is it just a bit t- more hassle than it's worth? Yeah, I'm not, I suspect that this does represent, I'm no expert in that field either, but I, I suspect it represents some sort of um, move away from politics. Because, yeah, since he retired from the game in 2005, he has been uh, involved in opposition politics um, and using his celebrity sort of globally to draw attention to um, his attempts to, uh, you know, challenge Putin. Um but if he gets this job and he is aiming to do so at um, the Chess Olympiad, they have this kind of Olympic-style annual contest uh, next August in Norway. Um, he, I suspect that'll be a you know, full-time job and he will shift his political ambitions back to the game that, um, that gave him a career. Yeah, okay. It's interesting stuff. Simon Osborne of The Independent. And thanks so much for bringing us that today. No, pleasure. And that rather surreal conversation brings us nicely on to our own Gary Kasparov story, Ken, which will round out the show today. Yes, actually it started on Tuesday, September 22nd, 2009 at 12.03am when Simon Hick... Busy man. (laughs) Simon Hick emailed uh, essentially someone at uh, FIDE, the World Chess uh, Organization that we've just been talking about. Um, saying, I'm writing to you from a radio station in Ireland called Mm-mm. The reason uh, we have a nightly sports show called Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> inviting Gary Kasparov to come on and do a, a sort of an interview uh, with that radio show. Nearly a month later, he gets a response from uh, a man, the worldwide agent for Gary Kasparov, whose name I withhold. Dear Simon Hick, your email has been forwarded to me as Gary Kasparov's worldwide agent. He appreciates your invitation, but due to Mr. Kasparov's very busy schedule, he just does not have the time to do it. Thank you for thinking of him. Sincerely. That should be the end of that, then. That's, that's fair enough. It's always good to get a so direct s- yes or no. Simon, always, always hustling. Hello, thanks for your reply. We're still hoping to cover the story of Gary's life. Um, and then ask a couple of questions regarding other contacts, maybe people who might know Kasparov, anyone else who might be interested to talk. And... and uh, the following reply appears the next day. Simon, if you can provide a commercial sponsor to pick up the tab, I have a plan for you, which could be very good for... Mm-mm. That's the, uh, the radio station. <laughs> Assume a large hall with an audience of 500 to 1,000 or more. Attendance free by invitation only. The time of day best for your radio program and attracting a large audience. Gary Kasparov is on stage for 90 minutes, seated in a large, comfortable chair with an interviewer. The interviewer has 10 to 20 prepared questions. The subject matter is anything you like, but normally covers politics, strategy in business, and his fascinating life. It is fast-moving, and after about 60 minutes, it's open to the audience for Q&A. If it is broadcast live, a certain amount of stage management is called for. At the Radio City Music Hall in New York City a year ago, 
5,000 people gave him a standing ovation. He's that good. <laughs> that is good. His fee is $60,000 plus two first-class return airfares to Moscow. If the idea appeals to you yeah. and is feasible, we have a lot to discuss. Looking forward to hearing from you, as ever. Name. Uh, so. Absolutely ridiculous, the man's been. How can you provide a large, comfortable chair? $60,000. So I, I see from the email record that Simon Hick wastes no time responding to this. Uh, within half an hour, he's, he's fired off his, uh, his next email, which says, Hello, thanks so much for the reply. It sounds like a great idea. We would have to look into the finances, though, obviously. Is it possible the fee is negotiable? I've discussed it with the other people in our production team, and we were thinking of also getting Frank Bruno on stage with Gary, if it can be organized. Mr. Bruno is a huge star over here, and it would go down brilliantly with the audience to have the two of them together in the one venue. Regards, Simon. And the uh, response also comes pretty quickly. Remember, the first reply took nearly three weeks to, to arrive. This one, this one comes very quickly. Simon, thank you for your email of October 20th. Frank Bruno is a good idea, but adds to the cost. Gary's fee is not negotiable, but we can negotiate the travel if we pick a date when he's nearby. Looking forward to hearing from you, as ever. So uh, The trail runs called after that, I think. That was it, yeah. That was, uh, yeah. That was the end of the... The interaction. Well, we will endeavour to get Gary Kasparov on second captains at the Irish Times. We'll see if maybe, maybe we can have a whip round. Somewhat lowered. You know, if you're if if you're interested in hearing uh, Gary Kasparov, if you're interested in maybe attending a free by invitation event, uh, if we can get together about he's sixty thousand dollars, he's a pretty hot ticket here in Ireland. Uh, we can we can probably arrange for him to be here. That's it from us. Second captains at the Irish Times. You will have second captains football a little bit later on for you today. And do check us out on Twitter at second captains, facebook.com forward slash second captains. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed Sean Og and indeed the rest of today's show as much as we did. Thanks for listening and thank you, Ken. Thank you too. Chat to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 